The explosion happened at 9.40 p.m., when most of the men were asleep. As it tore through the ship, the blast would claim the lives of 252 of the ship's complement of 355, with that number rising to 266 in coming days as men finally died from their injuries. The whole thing was a tragedy, and almost immediately people began to demand what had caused the explosion in the first place. True to the maxim, before the truth had even gotten its pants on, word began to spread far and wide that the blast had been the work of something extraordinary. According to the rumors, there was no other explanation than a mine, deviously placed, that had taken the lives of more than 260 good American men. Today, the consensus is that the mine theory is the least probable of all the alternatives, Many agree that some stray bit of fire had gone into the coal bunker, and when that went up, so did the ship's magazine, which was right next to it. And when that magazine went up, all the others did too. But at the time, the mine theory was spread far and wide, with everyone, from powerful political officials to the muck-raking yellow journalists, thundering that this had all been a clear act of aggression. Because on the night of the explosion, February 15, 1898, this ship, the USS Maine, had been in a very specific spot, that is, Havana Harbor, for a very specific reason. It was protecting American interests on the Isle of Cuba during a time of instability and mounting tensions with the ailing Spanish Empire. So when the Maine suddenly exploded that February night, it sent the dominoes tumbling. And soon America, and a bit surprisingly, especially Arizona, would get pulled into the coming conflict. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 146, Arizona and the Splendid Little War. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we again hopped on the political merry-go-round and followed the incredibly short term of Governor Myron Howley McCord and the return of Governor Nathan Oaks Murphy. But you'll remember that there was a very specific reason that Governor McCord had such a short time in the hot seat, which is what I want to talk about today. And it all starts with the explosion of the USS Maine. Okay, so the too-long-didn't-read version leading up to that fateful night in February 1898 goes a little something like this. In the decades following the Civil War, the businessmen of the Gilded Age did what Gilded Age businessmen did and developed quite a bit of economic power on the island of Cuba. At the same time, Spain which had held on to Cuba since the 15th century, was finding its political power waning and a free Cuba movement sweeping through the island's inhabitants. Spain was tenaciously clinging on to the island because it was one of the last vestiges of its once mighty empire, which had collapsed more and more as the centuries dragged on. But American business interests were getting worried about the tension on the island, and popular support was growing for the U.S. to go in and help their neighbor to the south kick out these Spanish tyrants. 
President McKinley tried to negotiate his way out of having to actually go toe-to-toe with Spain. However, both the Spanish and the Cuban rebels were not really open to talking. During a period of especially high tension, the USS Maine was sent to Havana Harbor in order to ensure the safety of American citizens, protect the nation's interests, and maybe strong-arm the Spanish into enacting some reforms. And I know this is way too easy, and I ask you to forgive the horrible pun in advance, but this move blew up in everyone's face. Too soon? In the aftermath, McKinley still tried to keep a lid on public anger, but it was a tough job, seeing as the explosion had been the greatest single-day loss of military personnel since the Battle of Little Bighorn. And the yellow journalist of the day, and here we really have to name-check William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, stirred up the public anger by printing sensationalist stories about how a Spanish mine had been the cause of the Maine's destruction. The rallying cry, which you may have briefly heard about while snoozing at the back of your high school American history class, became, Remember the Maine? To hell with Spain! They had for some time been printing other sensationalist stories about how those dastardly Spanish were abusing the poor, oppressed Cubans, so Americans were ready and willing to believe what they put out. I should point out that there is today some debate about how much Hearst and Pulitzer were really able to engineer the outlook of an entire country, but there is no doubt that the destruction of the Maine did demand a response. After a few more rounds of posturing between the U.S., Spain, and Cuba, Spain declared war on the U.S. on April 23, 1898, with the U.S. responding in kind two days later. Though the official start date of the war appears to be April 21st, after the U.S. sent Spain an ultimatum, and Spain cut off diplomatic relations. And this finally leads us back around to where we were last week. War was declared, and Arizona jumped into action. As historian Jay Wagner writes, this was really Arizona's first chance to go to war as part of the country. While the desert southwest had been fought over by the Confederates and the Yankees during the Civil War, that was mostly about drawing the lines on a map. Very few Americans actually lived in Arizona at that time, besides a few miners and businessmen. Early state historian James H. McClintock says that while the territory was really kind of remote and removed from the Spanish-American War, the adventurous spirit of the Southwest caused men from across Arizona to volunteer for service. In the days before war was officially declared, the U.S. Secretary of War was empowered to recruit volunteer units from across the country. When McCord received word of this recruitment, he put William Bucky O'Neill and none other than James H. McClintock in charge of seeking enlistments across the territory. Now, we talked about Bucky O'Neill back in episode 129, but one thing that I didn't mention, which my sources all want me to, is that he always aspired to military honors. Not content with being a newspaper editor, politician, lawman, and businessman, he had several times joined militias, but was always a little disappointed that he never got to really do any real soldiering. The irony here is that for someone chasing military glory, he didn't have the stomach for war. Once, while being assigned to help guard a gallows during the execution of a murderer, he actually fainted at the sight. 
It's also interesting that McCord gladly nominated O'Neill for this position, as the two were political rivals, and O'Neill had used his time in the press to launch several broadsides at the governor. Plus, O'Neill had actually run for congressional delegate as a populist after the Republicans had decided not to nominate him. Though McClintock in his history says that there was some arguments about appointing O'Neill and that McCord maybe had to be talked into going with him. As for McClintock, I wanted to touch on him later in this episode, but I ran out of space for the week. But believe me, we are definitely going to circle back around to him and his illustrious career in a future episode. I will add that I've also seen it written that the idea to start recruiting was actually from Alexander Oswald Brody, a West Point graduate who had left the army to become a civil engineer in Prescott. Brody would actually be given the rank of major and be put in charge of all of Arizona's volunteers, and we will also have much more cause to talk about him in future episodes. However the idea of recruitment happened, whether from Brody or McCord, in the immediate aftermath of the declaration of war, President McKinley accepted the nominations of Brody, O'Neill, and McClintock. In the meantime, the latter two had split the territory on their recruitment drive, with O'Neill taking the north and McClintock taking the south. When the call finally did come for 210 volunteers from the territory, because of this active recruitment, more than a thousand men were ready to serve. Though, because the U.S. was only asking for 210 men, not everyone got the chance. But what exactly were they serving in, you ask? Well, the Secretary of War decided to create volunteer cavalry units, creatively called the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd United States Volunteer Cavalry. These were understood to be recruiting the classic cowboy of the West, someone who could ride a horse well, take care of himself, and of course, fire a rifle even in the worst situations. Now, the 2nd and 3rd U.S. Volunteer Cavalry are not that important to our story at all, and McClintock in his retelling kind of dismisses them out of hand, saying that they were mainly recruiting in Wyoming and Montana and had disappointing commanders and never made it out of the U.S. But the first U.S. Volunteer Cavalry? Well, they had quite a different historical fate, mainly because I'm pretty sure you've all heard of them. What's that you say? You don't recall hearing about the first U.S. Volunteer Cavalry? Maybe because they are best known by the sobriquet given to them by history. The Rough Riders. Yes, those Rough Riders. The origin of that particular nickname, ostensibly because of their rough-and-tumble cowboy appearance, is a tricky thing to nail down. Some attribute it to their most famous member, a warmongering fellow from New York named Theodore Roosevelt, while others say the press gave them the nickname or that it was borrowed from the full name of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Now, the overall officer in charge of the Rough Riders, and I'll just keep using that term because it's easier than first U.S. Volunteer Cavalry, and especially because longtime listeners of the podcast know that I have particular trouble pronouncing cavalry correctly, was turned over to Colonel Leonard Wood, who was then serving as captain in the medical corps. Here's the thing, though. We've already met Wood, and not just for a one-off episode either. Back in episode 110, 
I introduced him when he came to Arizona in 1886 as an assistant surgeon to help Captain Henry Lawton and General Nelson A. Miles track down Geronimo. He actually was in Arizona through the whole end of the Geronimo saga, and it would be after helping wind up that little affair that he finally achieved his dream of moving into a command position. Go back and listen to episodes 110 through 115 if you want to see his contributions, or maybe just go back and listen to those episodes anyway because they are a great story and I put a lot of time and effort into them. Back to the topic at hand, it's great that the head of the Rough Riders was someone who had already established his Arizona bona fides so thoroughly. The lieutenant colonel who served as his second-in-command was famously that same warmongering fellow from New York who had just quit his gig as assistant secretary of the Navy to join the war effort. There's much more we can say about that guy, but I think that's a different podcast. Anyway, formal enlistment into the Rough Riders began on April 30th, 1898, but many of the volunteers had already been in Prescott enjoying its famous Whiskey Row before then. In addition to the actually organized volunteers, some other individuals, even a handful from California, just kind of showed up in Prescott to join. When April 30th finally rolled around, it was kind of fitting that Bucky O'Neill was the first man to appear before the mustering officers. The men would board a train to head east on May 4th, after a short speech by McCord, who presented them with a large silk flag sewn for the men by the Relief Corps of the Grand Army of the Republic in Phoenix. The women had spent all night toiling on the flag, and it was a good thing they put in that effort because it would actually follow the men onto the shores of Cuba. Historian Jay Wagner says that at the time he was writing in 1970, this flag, now tattered, weather-beaten, and bullet-ridden, was residing in the governor's office in Phoenix. I don't know if that's still the case, but if it is, that's kind of cool. Once they had made it to San Antonio, Texas, Wood started organizing the regiment. Since the Arizona contingent was the first to arrive of the eventual 1,060 men, they were given seniority. Brody was made a major of the 1st Squadron, while O'Neill and McClintock, along with a Phoenix attorney and another McCord enemy named Joseph L.B. Alexander, were made captains of A, B, and C troops, respectively. A D troop was also organized using volunteers from Oklahoma. And here, thanks to Roosevelt's gusto for the war, the composition of this unit really began to change, with a lot of men from eastern colleges and other not-so-cowboy occupations beginning to fill out the ranks. After a few weeks of what certainly was a thrilling training montage, the regiment received its orders to head to Tampa, Florida to get ready to head out. Unfortunately, once they got there, they found there was a serious shortage of transports to ferry soldiers the 90 miles south to Cuba, so only eight dismounted troops of 70 men each would be able to go. C Troop immediately was cut loose to stay in Florida and look after the gear and horses the rest could no longer take, while also taking on the extra men A and B troops had to lose in order to get on a boat. It's from the fact that they had to leave their horses behind and spend most of their service marching that the Rough Riders received their other nickname, Woods Weary Walkers. 
McClintock even says that after waiting a week for the chance to ship out, Wood and the Rough Riders actually ran double time to get on a transport before other units could fill it up and they would be left behind. As the ships carrying the Rough Riders left the harbor, the band played them off with a rendition of There'll Be a Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight, which the unit had adopted as their war song. Wagner and McClintock both say that the Spanish would hear this tune so often in Cuba that they actually mistook it for the American National Anthem. For those who made it to Cuba, there was now the grisly business of war to do. They arrived at Santiago on the southeastern side of the island on June 22nd, and on June 24th, they were involved in the skirmish of Las Huasimas. During this engagement, six Arizonans in A and B troop were killed, with more injured. Among these injured were McClintock, who was shot in the left ankle, and Major Brody, whose right wrist was shattered by a bullet. Both of them would be evacuated from Cuba with other wounded men. A week later, the Rough Riders would participate in the most famous set piece of this war, the charge up San Juan Hill. The Spanish were holding a defensive position along a mile-long ridge known as San Juan Heights, and American forces were deployed to unseat them from these fortifications, with the Rough Riders on the extreme right of the American flank. And this is where we, unfortunately, have to part with Bucky O'Neill. The dramatic, though admittedly pointless, fashion of his death came about because of his own overeagerness and self-confidence. As McClintock tells it, he and his men were laying low along a sunken road with some vegetation uphill from them. The Spanish were apparently continuing the fire in the direction of where they thought the Americans were, but were basically wasting ammunition. Impatient to move forward, O'Neill actually stood up to follow the road a bit and get a peek of the path ahead. A sergeant called for him to get back down, but O'Neill, with a freshly rolled cigarette in his hand, dismissed this advice. He is supposed to have said, quote, The Spanish bullet isn't molded that will hit me. End quote. As you can probably guess, it's right after saying this that a bullet struck him in the head, killing him instantly. So remember folks, just because you think you are immortal doesn't make it true. Okay, for the record, I do have one source that says this whole story is erroneous, but it's something that cropped up in the days and years following O'Neill's death. McClintock, writing a little less than two decades later, does repeat this story, so believe who you will on this one. Either way, O'Neill was dead at 38 from a Spanish bullet, after a lifetime of chasing influence and, dare I say, glory. In the end, the Rough Riders and others were able to surge forward and take Kettle Hill, which was on the right flank of the San Juan Heights fortification. However, in so doing, they lost 141 members from both A and B Troop. Roosevelt, who was commanding the regiment as Wood had been promoted to Brigadier Commander, would later commend 28 men specifically, with 11 of them being from A and B Troop. There's not much left to tell about their time in the war, mainly due to the war being over six weeks later, when an armistice was declared on August 12, 1898. By August 14th, the Rough Riders were back in the States, having been sent to Long Island. They met up with their compatriots who couldn't make the transport to Cuba, 
and for a brief period became a cavalry unit once again. But on September 15th, the unit was officially discharged, with everyone going back to their own lives. Now, one little detail that I love is that McClintock, and remember he was actually there for all of this, relates how before A and B troops departed from Arizona, they had actually adopted a mascot. This was a half-grown mountain lion named Josephine that had been presented to them by a Prescott citizen. And this mountain lion was with them on the trip to Florida, but obviously stayed behind with C Troop and the rest. McClintock says that after the mustering out, Josephine was quote-unquote lost in Chicago during the westbound journey, but I honestly can't tell if he means lost or if he's using a euphemism. The Rough Riders were to have several reunions over the years in various spots, many of them attended by Teddy Roosevelt, even after he became Vice President of the United States. Alexander Brody, the major overseeing A, B, and C troops, was elected the President of the Association that oversaw the first reunion in Las Vegas, New Mexico on June 24, 1899. But I want you all to remember last week when I said that Arizona's short-term governor, Myron McCord, had stepped down from his office to join the war effort as well. He went to join the other volunteer unit of the day, which at first was named 1st Regiment Arizona, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Indian Territory United States Volunteers. Finding this unwieldy, and as McClintock jokingly notes, it wouldn't fit on a soldier's uniform at all, it was shortened to the 1st territorial infantry. Arizona's allotment was three companies comprised of 334 men and 12 officers. This is who McCord was leading, though as a couple of my sources point out, he had no military experience and got the gig only because of his friendship with President McKinley. As I mentioned last week, he confined himself to purely administrative work while an actual army lieutenant colonel led the troops. This guy apparently did a great job whipping the recruits into shape after the regiment had been organized in Lexington, Kentucky. And after six weeks in Kentucky, it was sent to Camp Churchman near Albany, Georgia. And it would still be there when it was mustered out of service in February 1899, long after the war had ended. This goes without saying, but the unit never saw service in the war. The only things of note from their time was some disagreements with the residents of Lexington, who didn't like their presence, and a few deaths from typhoid fever. At roughly the same time as the war in Cuba was wrapping up, the U.S. also got involved with another soon-to-be former Spanish colony, the Philippines. A local revolt, plus an American presence, turned the Philippines into another battleground in the summer of 1898. Wagner tells us that more than 50 men from Arizona would end up serving in the 34th U.S. Volunteer Infantry, including two former Rough Riders from Phoenix, John Campbell Greenway and A.H. Stanton. Also joining as a sergeant was a young man who'd been turned down by the Rough Riders because of his relatively young age, Raleigh Clement Stanford. But Greenway and Stanford would go on to have fairly impressive political careers in the years to come. 
Stanford would be elected Arizona's governor in 1936, while Greenway would also serve in World War I, achieve the rank of Brigadier General in 1919, and would work for the Office of Naval Intelligence. A statue of him made by none other than Gutsum Borglin of Mount Rushmore fame was placed in the U.S. Capitol's National Statuary Hall collection in 1930 and would stay there until it was replaced by one of Barry Goldwater in 2015. His statue now resides in the Polly Rosenbaum Archives and History Building near the state capitol in Phoenix, while another casting of the statue apparently resides in Tucson. I should also mention that Greenway was married to Isabella Monroe Ferguson, who would have quite the political career herself, becoming Arizona's first congresswoman when she was elected in 1932. Before we leave the Philippines, I want to remind you of what I mentioned back in episode 115, that Henry Lawton, who as a captain had run around Mexico trying to bring Geronimo in, was serving in the country as a general. However, his fate was not the best as he was shot and killed on December 18, 1899, the only U.S. general to die during that conflict. Charles H. Herner would write in the autumn 1995 volume of the Journal of Arizona History that for the rest of their lives, the men who had made up the Rough Riders were all extremely proud of their service, especially in the most famous volunteer unit in American military history. Their service as a unit lasted only four and a half months, and that's from recruitment to discharge, but their legacy has gone on quite a bit. Roosevelt, the most famous rough rider of them all, would have a platoon of 30 of his old war buddies act as his personal bodyguards during his inaugural parade on March 4th, 1905. And this platoon was led by Alexander Brody and included James H. McClintock and Joseph L.B. Alexander, both from Phoenix and the former captains of B and C Troop, as well as men from Bisbee, Yuma, and Morency. This was the same parade where, as we covered in episode 115, that Roosevelt had none other than Geronimo riding a horse down Pennsylvania Avenue. The next year, in 1906, a memorial was erected in Section 22 of Arlington National Cemetery, near where many of the casualties of the Spanish-American War were buried. The gray granite pillar displays the insignia of the 1st U.S. Volunteer Cavalry, battles in which they fought, and a list of all the members who had lost their lives. It was officially dedicated on April 12, 1907, with Roosevelt, of course, presiding over the event. We also have to turn to one other Rough Rider-related event happening in 1907, but this one much closer to home. Because that same year, a memorial was going up in Prescott, in the plaza in front of the Yavapai County Courthouse, the very spot where the Arizona Volunteers had left from. We talked briefly about this statue before when we were covering Bucky O'Neill back in episode 129, a bronze equestrian statue showing a rough rider astride a horse. As a few of my sources have pointed out, it's commonly assumed that the statue is honoring just O'Neill, but in reality it's dedicated to the rough riders as a whole. McClintock, who served with O'Neill, had been there in Cuba with him, even says that the statue was fashioned more to evoke the spirit of the regiment than to get an exact likeness of O'Neill, per se. 
As I mentioned in episode 129, it was the work of Solon Borglund, brother of Gutson, and was accepted on behalf of the territory by the governor in office at the time. And it's still there, so add it to things to see in Prescott when you're up that way. As for O'Neill himself, the 20th legislature would pass a resolution expressing the chamber's sadness at the passing of such a notable figure and all of the other Arizonans who had not come home from Cuba. And here I would like to insert a much-needed correction. When I covered O'Neill's life, I said something like he was the only rough rider to die in combat, and I have to apologize for that remark because I have no idea where I got that from, and it's patently untrue. So consider that corrected. O'Neill was originally interred at San Juan Hill, and it wouldn't be until 1899 that his grave was finally identified, and his remains moved to Arlington, where he was buried underneath an elaborate granite tombstone. In addition to listing his name, rank, unit, dates of birth and death, it also lists his service as Mayor Prescott and position commanding A Troop, 1st U.S. Volunteer Cavalry. Underneath it all is inscribed a quote, Who would not die for a new star on the flag? Well, he didn't get a star added to the flag, but he got semi-immortality, which is a good runner-up prize, I guess. For as brief and straightforward as it was, I'm still blown away about how connected Arizona was to the Spanish-American War. I learned the state's history in elementary school and then in a college class, but until I started digging into the reading for this episode, I didn't fully appreciate how many Arizona connections there were. I knew the territory had men who served in Cuba, but not that the Rough Riders themselves contained a whole smattering of Arizonans. Or that Leonard Wood, who was in command of the regiment, had been a young man chasing Geronimo across Arizona and Mexico. Many prominent or soon-to-be prominent territorial leaders were in the ranks of the Rough Riders, including one of the historians whose work I've been using for the podcast for the last three years. It really is incredible. But the Spanish-American War is now over, and so is our coverage of it. So join me next week as we look at another armed group of Arizona volunteers, the Arizona Rangers, who were formed at the beginning of the 20th century to curb violence and criminal activity so that Arizona could finally show that it was ready to become a state. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.